So welcome to Podcast 56. Great to have you. Great to have you here. I want to talk a little bit about um, terrorism, uh, and, and I want to talk about uh, the nature of terrorism, or define help help us think through what it means to identify someone as a terrorist. Now, uh, unfortunately, we live in a time where terrorist has come to mean um, bad guy. I saw a bumper sticker one time, uh, uh, terrorist, what the big army calls the little army. Um, and this is just as about as wildly inaccurate as it's possible to be. Terrorism is a uh, is terrorism is not a word that should be used as a measurement of evil. So uh, terrorist is not synonymous with orc. Um, a terror uh, terrorism is a particular tactic. It's a particular tactic, and it's a tactic that's used by bad people because uh, terror this uh, this tactic of terrorism is. Um, one that violates uh, Augustine's uh, approach to just war. It's not a it's not a godly tactic, but it's a tactic. So, um, so for example, when uh, when Pearl Harbor occurred in 1941 on December 7th, uh, President Roosevelt didn't go on the radio uh, to declare war on sneak attacks. He didn't declare war on sneak attacks. He didn't declare war on surprise attacks. He declared war. He asked, con he asked Congress for a declaration of war against Japan and got it. So uh, the, the thing that got us into the Second World War was a sneak attack. It was a surprise attack. But when we got into the war, we were at war with Japan. We were not at war with sneak attacks. Um, because sneak attack, a sneak attack is a tactic Japan was the perpetrator of the sneak attack. Now, bad men can use a sneak attack, and good men can use a sneak attack, and uh, bad men can refrain from using a sneak attack for various reasons, and and so on. So, when uh, the part of the reason this um, this matters is that people will oftentimes say that, particularly in the Middle East, if we're talking about um, uh, if we're talking about Israel and Israel's conflict with some of its neighbors, uh, this is an area, the area of the world and an area of discussion that has gotten hopelessly muddled. The, I, I've said, I said earlier that terrorism is a particular tactic. It's a particular um, approach to conflict. And that approach to conflict is to directly target innocent civilians in order to spread dismay, consternation, and terror in the general populace. Okay, that's the technique. That's the, that's, the, uh, that's the whole point. A terrorist is someone who engages in terrorist acts. A terrorist act would be uh, if terrorism started to happen in Des Moines, Iowa. It would uh, be with random random uh, municipal trash cans exploding, uh, someone opening fire in a, sta in a stadium full of civilians, uh, uh, a, a play, a high school play being targeted. So what's, what's happening is people are, the technique is to attack defenseless people 
in order to cause panic and dismay and terror to spread through the whole populace to keep uh, that populace's uh, fighting will from rising up or, or to beat it down. Now, in, in the Middle East, uh, terrorism is a tactic for various reasons. We don't need to go into all, all of them right now because that, that's not the point. Terrorism is, is a technique that is employed against Israel by terrorists, by the ter their terrorist op opponents. Terrorism is not a technique that Israel uses on them. Now, I'm not saying that Israel always fights clean. I'm not saying that Israel is not guilty of any outrages. I'm not saying that, guilt, uh, that Israel has never done anything bad at all. My point here has to do with the tactic. Um, the tactic of terrorism is when a suicide bomber walks into a deli in Tel Aviv or uh, in Jerusalem and full of teenagers, full of Israeli teenagers, and blows himself up in the deli full of teenagers. And then after this happens, Hamas or some other terrorist organization claims responsibility. They say, we're the ones who did that, and you need to be afraid because we're going to do it again. Uh, there are other delis, and we're going to do it again. We want you to think that we might do it again. We want terror to spread. So when something happens, let, let's say some, somebody blows um, uh, up a bunch of civilians, and nobody takes responsibility, uh, then half of the terrorist act is missing. The whole point of it is to say, yeah, we're bad and we'll do it again. Um, that's, that's terrorism. Now, when uh, an Israeli rocket destroys a, um, uh, uh, let's say, a house, it, there's, let's say it's a collateral damage thing, or they wind up killing civilians, or sometimes in uh, the United States, uh, drone warfare in the Middle East, um, some, a wedding party is mistakenly attacked or something like that. Uh, that is a tragedy. It's regrettable. It's a bad deal. But it's not terrorism. Uh, it, it would only be terrorism if the United States said, yeah, we um, blew up this wedding party. We did it on purpose, and we're going to do it again if you guys don't start behaving. That's terrorism. Now, someone could, you know, a, a state like Israel or a state like the United States could uh, do some evil thing, kill innocent civilians, and could do it on purpose. But unless they claim responsibility for it publicly, it's not terrorism. Or, you know, it technically it could be if they, if they officially said disclaimed responsibility, but then privately wanted everybody to know, yeah, we did do it. Um, but if, you, if you're denying responsibility from top to bottom, if you say, no, that was not us, or it was totally an accident, uh, you're, not wanting, you're not wanting people to draw um, uh, certain fearful conclusions. It's not terrorism. Here we are, podcast 56, and I want to uh, review this. Uh, um, this time I want to review... Uh, the book Expositional Exaltation by John Piper. I want to say at the front end that I've not, I'm, I'm not uh, done with this book, uh, but I'm far enough into it to be really excited about it. Uh, this is a fantastic book for preachers to get. Um, uh, what John Piper does is, here is he, he wants to show how 
um, the proclamation of the word, the preaching of the word in, in a way that exults in the gospel that is being proclaimed is an essential part of corporate worship. It's an essential part of corporate worship. Now, some people might want to say that worship only occurs in the Bible with individuals by themselves, like Isaiah, when he sees the Lord, uh, he, uh, he worships the Lord. Um, but the Bible does contain uh, a number of places that indicate, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Uh, let us serve God uh, with reverence and godly fear in, in Hebrews 12, uh, 28. Let it, and the word for serve there is worship. Let us worship God with reverence and with godly fear. Worship is a corporate act. And what Piper is doing is he's arguing that a particular kind of preaching is essential to the health of that corporate act. So, um, and here, this, there's an unfortunate um, uh, dichotomy, an unfortunate division that I think Piper's book is going to go a long way uh, to a uh, long way toward a, a addressing. Um, in the the Christian world is divided between um, those who say to those who tend to say worship is important, and by worship they oftentimes mean liturgical worship. Worship is important. We must come into the presence of God. We must worship Him. And in many ways, people who do this minimize the importance of the sermon. They, they, they want to say the Lord's Supper is, uh, is central or the liturgy or the music or whatever. The, and, and so in churches where worship is made the thing, you'll oftentimes see the sermon shrinking down uh, till it becomes a little sermonette for Christianettes, as the fellow said. But on the other hand, um, those uh, denominations, those parts of the Christian church that uh, emphasize preaching will oftentimes just have an opening prayer, a song, a sermon, a closing prayer, oh, and the offering. If it's Sunday morning, they'll have the offering taken. Well, there's a, there's a problem. Um, if, if you have uh, that kind of yeah, well, let me back up. Um, a word and sacrament go together, but they don't go together like ham and eggs or salt and pepper. They are not two distinct things that pair nicely. It's not this kind of wine and this kind of cheese go nicely. It's uh, a worship service is a, an activity. And I would say that preaching a word and sacrament go together the way cooking and eating go together. And so if you have uh, minimalistic preaching, no, either no preaching or minimal preaching or minimal teaching uh, in a service, then you have the Lord's Supper. It's like, kind of like a raw foods movement. It's like, it's, it's like eating um, baby carrots. And that's, that's what you get fed is baby carrots. Uh, baby carrots out of the bag. Um, but then on the other hand, if you go to other uh, places, uh, you know, let's say you leave the Anglican world where preaching is minimized uh, uh, and you go over to, let's say, the Reformed Baptist world, sometimes you feel there, and I'm, 
look, I know that there's some really good Anglican churches and there's some really good Reformed Baptist churches. I'm generalizing. Work with me here. So with this, with this generalization, uh, watching uh, some, uh, some in, let's say, the Reformed, the staunch Reformed, rock rib Reformed world, Reformed Baptists, some Presbyterians, it's like watching a celebrity chef on television. So um, in the Anglican church, you get to worship and you get to eat. You get to sit down at the table and you get to eat, but nobody cooked it. Nobody prepared it. Nobody spent any time on it. Nobody labored over it. And um, you go to the other uh, extreme you, where they, they really know how to preach and they really preach. It's like watching a celebrity chef cook this fantastic meal on television which they then throw out, and you don't get to you don't get to eat any. You just you're just watching him cook it. So when you when you're watching some celebrity chef preachers, you're watching them cook it, and other people there's no cooking, and you just get to eat. But it's again raw foods. Uh, I think that this is a very grievous problem, and I think that Piper's book is almost uh, well, it's, it's exquisitely designed to address this problem. Preaching is a high calling, and it's an essential part of making the worship service into what it ought to be, just as cooking is an essential part of a meal. So our, uh, we're continuing on with Plodcast 56, um, and we come to our Hamartiology segment, which this uh, week is going to be very short. Uh, The verb hamartano is used only once in Titus. In this passage, Paul is instructing Titus to reject the heretic after two admonitions. Those who won't listen to such admonitions are already subverted, sinning, and self-condemned. There it is, hamartano. They're sinning and they're self-condemned. That's in Titus 3.10 and 11. We see here that Paul does not place a sharp dichotomy between intellectual errors and moral failings. Heresy is a kind of sinning. So he's talking about the heretic, and he's talking about a heretic who won't listen, being mule-headed, being stubborn when someone says, no, that's not the way it is. That stubbornness uh, means you're already subverted, you're already sinning, you're already self-condemned. There is leprosy of the heart and leprosy of the head. Uh, Neither kind of leprosy is uh, to be desired. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.